Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. In March 2022, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, released a document titled ACOG Guide to Language and Abortion. In it, the organization calls on its members to use abortion-related terminology that is, quote, medically appropriate, clinically accurate, and without bias, unquote. In reality, from both a Catholic and a rational perspective, the guidance is highly problematic. Joining me today to discuss ACOG's Orwellian language on abortion is Dr. Chris Stroud. Dr. Stroud is a board-certified OBGYN with almost 30 years' experience. He, along with his wife, Mary Ann Stroud, CMN, owns and operates an independent private practice, the Fertility and Midwifery Care Center, and also a freestanding accredited birth center, both located in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Chris is also a co-host of the Catholic Medical Association's official podcast, Dr. Doctor, and recently launched his own podcast titled All Things Women's Health. Dr. Chris Stroud, welcome to Bioethics on Air. Joe, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful, wonderful having you as well, too. So, Chris, you're a new guest on our podcast, and as we always do with our new guests, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, and your work experience leading up to your present work. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm an OBGYN, so I did a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. That was at the University of Virginia, and went to medical school a little further south than that at, at uh, the University of Florida and then Florida State as an undergraduate. Um, and so my my career is really one of uh, sort of a crooked path, you might say, to end up where I am. <laughs> I actually left practice for a while and joined the dark side and became a hospital administrator Ooh. Uh, <laughs> and uh, completely burned out at that uh, and came back to practice. And um, you know, I really had some some major life uh, and spiritual changes when I came back to practice, and that really led me to where I literally sit today. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a bit. But I, but I have to ask you this question because you're a you're a prod, you're a podcast pro, so I have <laughs> to, so I have to ask you which you like better. Do you, do you like hosting podcasts or, as I like to say, being on the other side of the microphone like you are today? Uh, I have to say I feel much more comfortable hosting. Oh, um, me too. Because then all I have to do is just keep asking questions. Exactly. Uh, it's easy to ask them. It's not so easy to answer them sometimes. <laughs> um, but but it really is a pleasure to get to talk with you about anything, but especially about about this topic. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I love being on this side of the microphone a lot better. <laughs> I mean, we get paid to have conversations with people. <laughs> How great is that? That's right. Anyway, Chris, tell us a bit about um, your conversion from prescribing contraception, performing sterilizations, referring for IVF, to being a Creighton model fertility NAPRO technology practitioner. Sure. You know, when I converted to the faith uh, from uh, Episcopalianism or Anglicanism, mm-hmm. um, I was a hospital administrator, as I mentioned. And right. so when I came into the church at the Easter Vigil 2006, I didn't immediately run into the problems with contraception and sterilization and IVF because I wasn't a practicing OBGYN. So that was very easy for me. Uh, but a few years later, I returned to practice as a so-called regular OBGYN and then immediately encountered 
no big surprise, these problems. And uh, it was really through a remarkable priest in the confessional who said, you know what, You're, you've got to make a change. You can't be Catholic on Sundays at Mass and be secular on Monday. Now, we say that to doctors all the time, but for whatever reason, when, when Father said that to me, it just landed in the center of my chest. And he said, you've got to make a change. You've got to make a change right now. Go mm-hmm. talk to this physician. So I, I went to talk to a family physician who was doing this thing called Creighton and the Creighton Fertility Model and NAPRO technology. And he told me a lot about it. I didn't really hear a word he said other than it'll get you out of trouble with the church. <laughs> that's, that's what I wanted. As a new Catholic, I wanted to not be in trouble. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and I know and love this priest. And I thought if he tells me to do this, I'm doing it because right. what else would I do? Uh, so off to Omaha, Nebraska, I go to learn the Creighton model. And interestingly, while I was there, I really fell back in love, you might say, with human physiology and particularly reproductive physiology. And I felt like a, you know, a college student again. The stuff that I had learned decades before suddenly had new meaning. You know, I remember saying to my wife on the phone while I was there talking to her once, I said, you know, intimacy really is holy. <laughs> you know, it just occurred to me listening to these lectures. Um, but so I came back on fire and uh, told my current, I mean, my employer at the moment, I got to make a big change. I'm going to be Catholic in my practice. I'm not going to do this long list of things. Right. And I think it probably scared them to death. So they let me do it. Um, I was going to ask, what was, the, what was the reaction to that? In, and, and was it a, was it a secular practice? Was it a it Catholic was. practice? Yeah, was it, it was a secular practice owned by a large hospital system with a large OBGYN group and a multi-specialty group. I think it just scared the administrator so much because I think probably all he really heard was, there's a doctor that works for me that wants to stop doing something for religious reasons. <laughs> And that's a terrifying thing for a young administrator. So he said, sure, that'll be fine. Go do that or or not do that. But then the miraculous thing was my practice exploded in in the positive. Um, I became overwhelmed with patients thinking I was going to fail. Suddenly I was flooded with with patients wanting the services that I'd learned. And I grew so so fast, um, so much that we left there and 2014 and opened our own independent practice. Yeah. Uh, and it, it has been a whirlwind since then. Um, and all it took was that that one leap of faith. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that because I've had conversations with physicians who've said that they actually, their conscience or their you know, practicing according to their faith, it's actually easier for them in a secular setting than it is in a Catholic setting. Interesting. And, and partly, I think partly because of what you just said, that, you know, the secular authorities, they hear, you know, religious reasons and they kind of get scared and they're like, oh, okay, okay, Chris, go just do what you want to do. Yeah. Please don't cause me any trouble. Just exactly. Go, yeah. And the uh, fact that you were probably making money for the, for the <laughs> system probably helped as, that probably helped yeah, as well too. They were very happy with my growth. Now, interestingly, um, my current partners at the time, I shouldn't say current, the partners at the time were not happy with my explosive growth. And, you know, I started getting accused of hiding the birth control pill brochure and and things like this. And at the time, the president of the group actually pulled me aside and said, you had the nerve to tell one of my patients that the IUD I put in her could cause an abortion. 
And I said, you had the nerve to put it in. I had the nerve to tell her the truth. <laughs> so uh, it, it wasn't very long before we decided we, we've got to get out. We need to go on our own and uh, yeah. have a go at this uh, just being us. And it turned out really well. Praise God. Yeah, sure has. Well, that's a great segue into my next question. So, so Chris, can you tell us a bit about the uh, the Fertility and Mid- Midwifery Care Center, as well as the the um, the Independent Birth Center sure, that you are running with your wife? Center. Yeah, we're three physicians, soon to be four, and we're six certified nurse midwives. And we're not all Catholic. A lot of us are, but we all subscribe to the teachings. And we don't prescribe contraception. We don't put in IUDs. We don't tie tubes. We don't refer for in vitro fertilization or termination of pregnancy for Mm -hmm. any reason. And that's a long list of the things we don't do, which is an odd way to describe something. Uh, But it is pretty descriptive. But, you know, we have a strong emphasis in fertility using the Creighton fertility model and NAPR technology Um, and, you know, natural pregnancy. It's funny. I think there's a big overlap in kind of a Venn diagram sort of way of women who feel very strongly about doing things as naturally as they can and women who get the beauty um, uh, uh, and the sanctity of their reproductive system and don't want hormonal contraception and don't want a lot of unnecessary interventions. And so um, we stress those things and try to treat pregnancy and health for the gift that it is. Um, And because so many of our patients are interested in that kind of approach, we opened the Holy Family Birth Center in uh, 2019, just had our 400th baby wow. uh, a few days ago, wow. and it's a freestanding birth center. Um, it's accredited, and it's uh, just a marvelous place. Uh, it's funny. We had a focus group uh, to figure out what the name was, and we said, we really like Holy Family Birth Center, and the focus group said, oh, no, that's way too religious. You, <laughs> you will scare people off. Uh, don't do that. So we said, well, then that's exactly what we're going to name it. And we went on to name our birth suites after uh, Saints Gianna, Mother <laughs> Mother Mary, <laughs> uh, and St. Mary Magdalene. And so, I mean, it just seems like every time we chose faith, God said, thank you, and rewarded us with um, with great things. Uh, I'm not sure why it took us so long to figure that out, um, but it sure it sure seems to have made him happy. Yeah, sounds good. And you, uh, I, I think I have the correct episode, the Doctor Doctor episode. I believe it's episode two fifty six, childbirth, safe, healthy, and empowered options. You talk about this in a lot more detail. Yes, we did. Uh, if listeners want to go to Doctor Doctor dot org, you can look up that episode and all of the episodes. Right. But uh, yeah, it was a real fun discussion with both Doctor Mullally and Doctor McGovern, just really talking about childbirth options and including home birth and hospital birth. Yeah. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Tell me what it's like working with your wife. You know, I get that question a lot. Um, (laughs) My wife would kill me. I wouldn't kill her, but she would kill me. We met when I was in residency, kind of a cliche. She was a nursing student and I was a resident. And so um, we've in some way or another always worked together. And she took about a decade off and homeschooled our three oldest kids and then came out of retirement to to open our current practice. But we've always really worked together and it, it's terrific. You know, in our roles, we have very 
proscribed roles, me as the obstetrician, right. uh, my wife as the nurse midwife. So it, is, it isn't unclear whose role is what. Now at home, that's a little different. Um, but, but in the office, we know what either, is, uh, either of us is supposed to do, and it, it really works out beautifully. Oh, sounds, that, that, that's great. I love it. Um, what's, this has become kind of a staple question on bioethics on air. Chris, what's a typical day look like for you? Yeah, you know, a typical day for me is uh, beginning maybe at the hospital, maybe with a surgery, maybe with just rounds, um, and then coming to the office and seeing uh, a lot of fertility consults. Uh, I usually start the morning with a few telemedicines. We take care of people virtually now, really, and all across the country, and then seeing a lot of people in person for fertility or recurrent pregnancy loss problems. Uh, maybe running over to the hospital to help with a birth or a surgery, and then uh, finish up and go home to uh, the uh, the kids that I have still living with me and my wonderful wife. Yeah. I, just in, in case people wanted, I, I didn't realize you did telehealth. Um, if people wanted to get a hold of you, I mean, trying to get some more patients to you, how would they, how would they contact you? <laughs> yeah, probably the easiest way. They could email me directly, and it's, it's Dr. Stroud, so it's D-R-S-T-R-O-U-D, at fertilityandmidwifery.com. Everything is written out. Um, and yeah, just drop me a note and say, interested in a telemedicine visit. And well, one of my assistants will reach out to you and take care of that. We'd be happy to help in any way we can. And a lot of times I, I do telemedicine visits just for patients who kind of want a second opinion on, this is what my Catholic OBGYN has said. It's not setting well with me. Is yeah. this Okay. Um, and so uh, I'm happy to help out with that in any way possible. Well, I'm going to put you on my list because in our, <laughs> we have our 24 hour consult service and yeah. we get calls, uh, fairly often from couples who are experiencing infertility and are being told something. And, and, and I have some people who I send them to, but I don't, you know, you don't want to yeah. go to the well too often, but now well, I've and, got, now I've got another one. And for the patients and, and their husband, that can be a horribly lonely space to be yes. sitting in. Yep. And, and I always tell people, you should never let anyone make you feel as though you must choose between your faith and your fertility because you don't have to, but man, the world can make you feel like you have to. And that's a terrible spot to be in. That's a great quote. You don't have to choose between your faith <laughs> and your fertility. I really like that. Yeah. It's, it's the truth. Yeah. All right. So let's change gears. Let's talk a little bit going from the, from the good to talking about the, well, maybe not so good. Um, talk a little about, a little bit about ACOG uh, or the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Chris, first of all, what is ACOG and what's its role? Yeah. ACOG is one of many, what I think we most would call specialty societies. So there's the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Physicians or uh, the American College of OBGYN, the American College of Surgeons. You know, these are professional organizations that are organized around usually a specialty. And, uh, and you know, they oversee the specialty, you might say. They publish recommended guidelines. They'll you know, they're, they're interested in ongoing education of their members, mm -hmm. advocacy for, you know, medicine in general, but usually a policy advocacy for something unique to that specialty. Um, and there, there are many of them that do a lot of great things. Um, ACOG has been around a long time and on their website, they say they have about 60,000 members, uh, but it's a big organization. It has always, you know, sort of been in the forefront um, of uh, publishing things on women's health. 
Okay. You mentioned the number 60,000. I'm wondering, do you know what percentage of OBGYs in the US belong to ACOG? And, and really the question is, does ACOG really speak for the mm. specialty as a whole? Yeah, you you know that's a great question, and I just don't know that it's answerable. Uh, my my instinct is most practicing OBGYNs are members of ACOG. Um, now maybe that's just part of the marketing to make me think that, but you know <laughs> if you're looking at an OBGYN's name and after MD or DO, it will say FACOG, meaning they're a fellow in the American College. Um, it is much more common to see that than to not see that, okay. you know, but the question, do they speak for OBGYNs? Um, you know, I would, I would have to say from a clinical perspective, probably to at least to a, a high degree, you know, if I want to know the most, you know, the most recent evidence on treating preterm birth, I can go to ACOG and look up what's called a practice bulletin. Mm -hmm. And they're written by a committee of usually academic physicians that are well-known. And they do a great job of providing a, a consensus opinion on this is the state of the art today for this particular issue. Um, the more clinical that topic is, I think the more they speak for OBGYNs. I would say when they drift into policy, mm -hmm. that's where things break down. And that's what you and I are going to be talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up. I, I'm wondering though, Chris, um, and, and it's, this raises a question to me about um, OBGYNs who practice abortion. I've heard from, you know, from various sources that a very large majority of OBGYNs in the U.S. don't practice abortion. Do you have any idea what that percentage is? I think it is actually a tiny number. Um, that, the, that, that do or don't? That do actually that do practice abortions. Okay. It, it is a very small uh, number. Um, I mean, certainly a lot of publicity around it as, as right. it should be, but uh, mathematically speaking, it's actually a very small number. Yeah. So, okay. And then, you know, in discussing ACOG, I should have mentioned, and you may have planned to ask me, sort of the alternative organization to ACOG, um, which is called the, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Yep. They were really formed out of some of the policy decisions that ACOG was making around abortion, around contraception by a group of like-minded OBGYNs that said, wait a second, we want to do the same things. We want to get information on the state of the art of the practice, but we want to take out um, the, the biases uh, when it comes to contraception and, uh, and abortion. Um, and that's a terrific organization, much, much smaller than ACOG, but really doing great work and really providing uh, a great platform for uh, physicians to learn more about being a pro-life OBGYN. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you about APLOG. Um, <clears throat> you, you kind of went there already, which is fine. Uh, Chris, do do OBGYNs in the U.S. belong to one group or the other? Are they exclusive? If you're if you're an ACOG, you're not an APLOG, or if you're an APLOG, you're not an ACOG. How does that how does that work? It could work either way. Um, APLOG used to be a specialty group within ACOG before they sort of carved themselves out. Right. Um, I would imagine uh, most members of uh, the pro-life group are also a member of ACOG. I'm actually not a member of ACOG. I dropped my membership years ago, really in, in protest over their contraceptive positions. I would love to see a, a lot of my colleagues do the same thing. 
But I think a lot of people stay kind of reluctantly wed to ACOG because they want access to the information they're putting out on clinical topics. Right. right. Now I've learned you can get that access easily anywhere else, but there is this feeling that, oh gosh, if I don't, if I don't remain a member, I may be on the outside of the circle. Um, But uh, I think that's the current state, but you know, patients, if you see FACOG after your doc's name, you should ask them, why are you, why are you a member of that organization? Uh, and after this discussion with you, they may be more motivated to, uh, to ask that question. Yeah, really. Speaking of which, all right, let's, let's go into the document. Um, uh, ACOG's Guide to Language on Abortion. All right. So Chris, in the introductory paragraphs to the document, and it's listed, I, I have the document in the, uh, in the show notes here. So in the introductory paragraphs to the document, ACOG states the following, quote, much of the language that is colloquially used to, to describe abortion or discuss health policies that impact abortion has a basis in anti-choice rhetoric and is inherently biased and inaccurate and at the very least is not medically appropriate, unquote. As such, it calls on its members to use language that is, quote, medically appropriate, clinically accurate, and without bias, unquote. All right, so so in the rest of this uh, interview today, let, let's see how they do uh, in, in terms of their own standards there. So I'd like to start off by talking about the terms baby and unborn child. All right, so the ACOG document says this, quote, centering the language on a future state of pregnancy is medically inaccurate. In other words, you can't use baby or unborn child. As long as the pregnancy continues, the language should reflect the current state. Use again, uh, excuse me, use instead through eight weeks after last menstrual period, embryo, and after that point until delivery, fetus. So Chris, what do you make of the instruction not to use the word baby and unborn child, but use embryo and fetus instead? What is what is ACOG trying to communicate here? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's no such thing as not having bias, right? We all, <laughs> we, we, we all have bias. Yeah. The most we could hope for would be to, one, understand our own biases, and two, just acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I have an overwhelming pro-life bias. I know mm-hmm. that. So when I'm when I'm talking about these things, it's impossible for me to sound as though I don't, and I have no desire to sound as though I don't. But they are expressing a bias in favor of a different kind of language. You know, is it scientifically appropriate to say embryo? Yes, absolutely. You could say morula or zygote or a whole host of embryologic terms. You can say fetus instead of baby. You're not incorrect to do that, not in a scientific biological way, but I would argue they're exhibiting their bias in favor of that kind of language. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one of, the, one of the, the remaining arts of medicine is language. Um, and I had an uncle that was a pediatrician, and he used to say, sometimes you have to know when to say mixturate and when to say pee. Um, you know, and, and, and the, the good doctor understands which one of those needs to be heard. Um, so while it's not un, uncorrect or, uh, to say embryo, why would I? Because it's a baby. Now right. I think, and, and it will become apparent as we look at some more of their language, they very clearly want to 
dehumanize what's happening. Exactly. Exactly. Fetus sounds different from baby. Exactly. You know, baby has a, oh, let me think, a human connotation to it um, because it is a human. And fetus somehow sounds kind of sci-fi, kind of kind of laboratory, kind of different. So their bias is in favor of that kind of language. Right. Um, but I think they're doing it with a goal in mind, and that is not to have you think that this is a baby. Right. And it's interesting because one of the definitions of fetus is little one. Yeah, that's from the Latin root. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful phrase, but yeah, it means little one. Yeah. Chris, staying on this for a second, I, uh, there's a part of that uh, language in there that, that really struck me. And it was, uh, they're using, when they say up to the point, excuse me, up to the point until delivery, use the word fetus. And maybe I'm showing my bias here. Um, <laughs> I, and I, I probably am, but hopefully it's a good bias. Uh, but stating that OBGYNs should use the term fetus until delivery, it it seems to me that ACOG is implicitly support, supporting abortion up to birth. Is, is that an accurate assessment or not? I, I cannot disagree with you there. I get okay. the distinct feeling of that. Why else would they have chosen those words? I mean, this is a document about the correctness of words. So I think we could probably assume they put a lot of energy into choosing these words, that they probably chose those words very carefully. But, you know, just think about it. I spent the day seeing patients today. I can't imagine seeing a 40-week pregnant woman and me saying to her, well, are you excited about this fetus? <laughs> you know, it, it, I would sound like an idiot, wouldn't I? I would, I would sound impersonal and uncaring, and it, would, it, it just doesn't pass the common sense test. Um, but I have to wonder, I, I think you're probably spot on. Um, that they're trying to dehumanize the baby up until the moment of birth, as though something magical happens when the baby comes out of the woman's body. Yeah. And I'm glad you you brought up dehumanization because that's a theme that, that's been running through my head as I you know was reading this document and preparing for this interview and actually going over the questions again a little you know earlier today. It's just it's dehumanizing um it's dehumanizing the unborn child in order to do the things that ACOG wants to do. Well, well, we know as a people from painful experience that it it requires dehumanization to do egregious things. Right. You know, we look at the Nazis. We can look mm-hmm. in Ukraine today. Yep. If you can dehumanize something, it's much easier to destroy it. Uh, and the opposite is true. That's why, you know, ultrasound is so important in pregnancy crisis centers. Because if I can show you that what is inside of you is not a clump of tissue with the potential to one day be your child, but instead, this is a baby with arms and legs and a heart and a stomach, that's a completely different message. Uh, And it resonates with women, not because we're playing games with language, but because that's the biological truth. Right. All right, so let's move into the next one. And this is, to me, this is this is the worst offender of the whole document. And in fact, when I, I said, I got to do a podcast on this, when I read these next two sections here. So, Chris, we're going to talk about heartbeat, oh. heartbeat and fetal heartbeat. And it's obviously very appropriate because of heartbeat laws um, in Texas. And uh, I believe Idaho has just uh, signed into law a heartbeat bill as well, too. But anyway, so regarding the term heartbeat or fetal heartbeat, ACOG says the following, quote, 
until the chambers of the heart have been developed and can be detected via ultrasound, roughly 17 to 20 weeks gestation, it is not accurate to characterize the embryos or fetuses' cardiac development as a heartbeat. Use instead embryonic cardiac activity before eight weeks of gestation and fetal cardiac activity after eight weeks gestation. All right. First of all, I need a, I need a little anatomy lesson here. <laughs> is, is ACOG correct in saying that the chambers of the heart are not developed until 17 to 20 weeks gestation? Well, again, I think they poured a lot of energy into choosing their words extremely carefully for this document, uh, and this being no exception. I think they're playing on the fully part. Mm -hmm. You know, could you say that the heart is fully formed um, at five to six weeks gestational age? Probably not, but the heart is present right. and it can be visualized. And if they say the definition of developed is seeing it on ultrasound, well, that's a function of technology and technology advances. The, thing, the things that I can see routinely today on a five to six week pregnancy, I couldn't see just 10 years ago until they were 20 weeks. So, you know, the technology is what determines what, what you can see and when you can see it. But I think anybody can look up embryologically in a human embryology textbook and see beautiful pictures of, of a, a baby's heart at, a, you know, between five and seven weeks. And the heartbeat can be detected and heard and seen at around that same time. Now, they go on in their language to talk about um, it's just a tube and it's not actually beating. It's just some activity. But again, that doesn't, that doesn't pass the common sense test. When you put the Doppler on and you hear the heartbeat, it is internationally understood in any language that is a human heartbeat. Right. I've, I've got to give um, one of my colleagues here at the NCPC, Diana Kret, um, a little credit on this because I asked her about this last week. And I said, you know, give me, and she's a PhD. She's taught nursing for years and years. And her reaction was, she said, well, yeah, I mean, you could say that the heart is not developed, you know, the four chambers of the heart haven't developed, I mean, maybe even closer to birth. But she said at, you know, the five to seven week period that you're talking about, the heart looks the way it's supposed to look and it's functioning the way that it's supposed to be functioning and it's beating. It, it's doing what it's doing. So again, it's, it's the games that, uh, and that ACOG is you know, playing here. An, an interesting corollary to that, we diagnose demise or miscarriage or fetal death or what's called a missed miscarriage by the absence of that finding, whatever you choose right. to call it, right. uh, on ultrasound. <laughs> right. So it, it can't be not meaningful because it's how we diagnose, I'm sorry, your baby has died. You know, you're having a miscarriage. So um, again, it doesn't pass the common sense test. Yeah. Now, Chris, you mentioned this, but just for clarity's sake, for my clarity, really, at what gestational age does a preborn child's heart start beating? Or, or let me rephrase that. When can a preborn child's heartbeat be detected? Yeah, we can usually see uh, evidence of the baby's heart between five, six and a half, seven weeks. Okay. You know, sometimes, it, particularly on a thin woman, you'll be able to see it earlier. You can see it earlier using vaginal ultrasound instead of abdominal ultrasound. But in that five to seven week window, you can see it. You know, when a patient who's very excited and very nervous, and she's three or four weeks pregnant, she wants an ultrasound. 
I've got a reminder. I may not see what you want to see. Come back next week. There's a pretty right. good chance I will. Right. All right. Now the uh, this this is what really got my uh, my uh, my heartbeat going. Maybe that's a, that's a, <laughs> a good pun there. All right. So staying with the terms heartbeat and fetal heartbeat, ACOG also says, "quote." It is clinically inaccurate to use the word heartbeat to describe the sound that can be heard on an ultrasound in very early pregnancy. In fact, there are no chambers of the heart developed at early stage pregnancy that this word is used to describe, so there is no recognizable heartbeat. Now, we already discussed that part. Here's, here's where it gets just crazy as far as I'm concerned. What pregnant people, notice it's not pregnant women, women. it's pregnant people, so I guess I can become pregnant, uh, but anyway. What pregnant people may hear is the ultrasound machine translating electronic impulses that signify fetal cardiac activity into the sound that we recognize as a heartbeat, unquote. Okay, Chris, please explain to me, and I'll ask this question in two ways. How are, quote, electronic impulses that signify fetal cardiac activity, unquote, different from a heartbeat? Or posed differently, how can electronic impulses, impulses that signify fetal cardiac activity be anything other than a heartbeat? Can you, can you explain that to me? Uh, in short, no. <laughs> because it's not explainable. That's really preposterous. I mean, it's almost laughable. You know, when you could say the same thing about the printout on the electrocardiogram machine. It's interpreting and measuring electronic impulses. That's what a heart cell does. It begins beating and it doesn't stop beating until it's time to go meet Jesus, right? right. Um, and it's an electrical, it's an amazing electrical machine. Uh, and when you listen to it with an electrical device, it's picking up that electric electrical activity. Um, so they did a great job describing what happens. Um, but to but to say that you shouldn't call it what it is makes no sense at all. Right. And, and again, just for clarity's sake, medically speaking, can anything other than a child's heartbeat, quote unquote, signify fetal cardiac activity, unquote, on an ultrasound? No, absolutely not. Okay. I mean, and that's not my wacky Catholic doctor opinion. Right. That's just biology. Right. Uh, it's just not possible. All right. Now, I, I'm gonna, I was going to bring this question back, and I am going to bring this question back at the end, but, but I got to ask it here. Is ACOG's guidance, as they said in their introduction to the document, is their guidance medically appropriate, clinically accurate, and without bias? Why or why not? No, it's, it's clearly not, because they're asking you to do things here with the end in mind. They, they want you to speak a certain way instead of describing things in the best way for the patient to understand them, which is the medical standard and has been for, for generations. Uh, but no, it's not medically correct. It's certainly not without bias. Uh, and I think you could argue in some of these examples, it, it's blatantly misleading. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I got to go back to this pregnant people um, <laughs> phrase. Uh, by using the term pregnant people and not pregnant women, ACOG, to me, appears to have um, adopted gender ideology. Can you comment on this? And what does this mean for the practice of obstetrics and gynecology? 
Yeah, this is a this is a bigger topic uh, altogether. I don't want to say it's bigger than abortion. Nothing's bigger than abortion, but in its own right, it is a very important topic. Uh, the American Board of OBGYN. When I said I'm a board certified OBGYN, they just published last Friday a support and saying that there should be no obstructions to gender affirming care. Now that means, if taken to its logical end. If I'm board certified and I don't follow that, my board certification could be at risk. Right. So if I have a 10-year-old girl asking me to give her puberty-blocking drugs, I'm an obstacle to gender-affirming care, uh, and I could lose my board certification. Now, that's not today, thank God, but that's the logical end. I think this language with pregnant persons is ACOG signing on that this is our language. They say menstruating persons, right. they say pregnant persons, they have bought into the gender trend language. Yeah. And I'm just thinking we, there was a, a story that we were um, following, I think it was back in 2009. I, I don't know if you heard about this and there may be others stories like it. The, a woman presented at uh, the University of Michigan Medical Center. And I don't know what her issue is. She presented in the ER, but she identified herself as a man. And so they treated her as a man. They never did a uh, they never did a pregnancy test. They never did anything. And lo and behold, she went into labor and delivered a stillborn child. Mm. And the hospital, you know, when they said, "What what are you doing?" I mean, because they did nothing um, to you know to to treat her, you know, to treat the pregnancy. They said, "Well, you know, we didn't know she was pregnant because she said she was a man." And, and the hospital insists that they gave her proper care. And, and it's just, it, it's yeah. crazy. I mean, they gave her gender affirming care by the, by the definitions. Yeah. And I know you're aware, not to get off topic, but March 31st, the White House produced a big document, yep. a long list yep. of things that support gender affirming care. Really, and if they were successful in achieving those goals, it would make that the law of the land. Right. Um, so this pregnant person's, just those two words, represent much, much more than just those two words. Right. It really represents ACOG really giving up their last vestigial remnant of, of remaining um, a specialty organization for the average OBGYN. I, I would argue they are no longer. Yeah. Do you think people will leave over it? I don't know. You know, uh, physicians, we're a funny lot. We... <laughs> Uh, you could do a whole show so, so just are, on that. So are ethicists. We're, we're a really funny lot. Uh, you could do a podcast just on physician weirdness, but <laughs> we, um, I would I would argue physicians are very sensitive to being outside the norm. Okay. You know, it's a it's kind of a club. I don't want to be out of the club, so I want to be right. I want to do the right antibiotic. I want to do things the right way, so my peers will not say to me, "Hey, you're doing the wrong thing." And there is a feeling that, oh, you, you know, you're an OBGYN, you have to be a member of ACOG. Otherwise, you're not in the club. Now, right. it's just not true. I haven't been a member for a long time. I'm functioning perfectly well. Um, I think eventually ACOG could do enough crazy things that enough pro-life physicians or just average physicians would say, they've lost their way. I'm, I'm not going to be a member of that. But it will be interesting to watch and see how that plays out. This concludes part one of my interview with Dr. Chris Stroud. In part two, Chris critiques ACOG's deceptive guidance concerning dismemberment abortion and what the word term means. He also fact checks the organization's claims about when pregnancy begins and the mechanism of emergency contraception. 
For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J-Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.